Welcome to Strictly JoJo, a podcast dedicated to JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, where every JoJo episode is reviewed by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney. This is episode 48, and we're reviewing part three, Stardust Crusaders, Tower of Grey. As always, there'll be spoilers for this episode, anything that's happened in the JoJo anime, so you've been warned. I thought you were going to say Tower of God for a second. Tower of God. Well, that I mean... bring back <laughs> memories <laughs> when, yeah. we, when we reviewed that. That like was in our heyday. That was an okay anime, but this episode is a pretty good episode. Yeah, I say it's better than okay. I don't. I wouldn't say it's the best, but it's it's a pretty good episode. It, it's just it. It's there. <laughs> That's it's how there. I'll, <laughs> I'll look at it. By the way, I, I I just wanted to point out in my intro last week, I was so excited about using my obi-wan voice for star wars day when we recorded that that i ended up saying kono dioda you did kono <laughs> and as i was editing it i i wanted to re-record it but i was like i don't think i can get back into that voice again so. you know what it's a fun little easter egg you know once in a while you drop a dio instead of a, a karu and it's all good yeah so my fault there i was just too excited for Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> um, well, I think equally exciting is the fact that we have a new patron for the Strictly series. Wow, great trend. You like that? I've been practicing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, before we get into this episode, I wanted to give a huge, huge shout out to our newest patron, CK. Woohoo! Thank you, CK, for your generosity. Just to kind of tie in with this episode, your support has sent us soaring to towering heights. Oh, I thought you were going to make a, an Egypt joke. <laughs> oh. <laughs> your, your support has allowed us your, to your support... travel to Egypt and fight Dio. Oh. <laughs> or you can say like your, your support has got us walking like an Egyptian. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much, CK. We seriously appreciate it. Um, we, we can't thank you enough. And if anyone listening would also like to support the show and get access to things like our bonus episodes, our pre-show where we just talked about our phobias before this recording, our show schedules to see what's coming up next, um, join us in our Q&A, et cetera, et cetera, then head over to patreon.com slash the Strictly Series. And on the Spotify end of things, thank you to everyone who has been leaving us ratings. We finally breached 30 ratings. I think we're at 31. We breached? Breached? We uh, surpassed? reached uh, yeah surpassed we, we've reached <laughs> sounds, the 30 mark it sounds like we're forcibly entering some some person yeah house. we pushed into the 30 <laughs> the 30 mark <laughs> beyond 30 but either way i think we're at like 31 ratings um on spotify and we are still pushing toward our goal of getting 50 ratings on spotify so if you are listening to us on that platform on the ios or android app all you have to do is go to strictly jojo you'll see a little star there under the follow button you hit that star you leave us a rating and it helps us out a lot we're gonna hopefully make it to our goal of 50 ratings and your support is greatly appreciated and of course if you're listening to us on other platforms such as apple podcasts you are more than welcome to Leave us a rating and a review on those platforms. Yes, um, please do. Yeah, we, we read through them and we always love to get feedback, especially in the form of written reviews. Hopefully they are, are good reviews, but we'll read them nonetheless. So yeah, whatever podcast streaming service you're listening to us on, please leave us a rating or review. So one piece of JoJo news that I wanted to share this week. Uh, so 2022 is actually the 10th 
anniversary of the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure anime. And so I think throughout the year, uh, David Production and, and Lucky Land, whoever's in charge of JoJo, has been putting together some special events and, and promos to celebrate the anniversary. And so for this month, uh, through the rest of this, or yeah, through the, through the summer, um, there will actually be a JoJo and Skytree collab. According to this Crunchyroll article, Tokyo Skytree reveals its JoJo's Bizarre Adventure decor and menu. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, Tokyo Skytree is the tallest structure in Japan as of 2010. Um, it's the primary TV and radio broadcast site for the Kanto region. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Tokyo Tower, which is like the red and white tower in Tokyo that kind of looks like the Eiffel Tower in Paris. But I, Tokyo Skytree is, it's kind of like the, it looks like the stratosphere. Um, if you're familiar with like that casino in Vegas. Does that also look like the needle in... Uh... Is that the Seattle or something? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that kind of design. So that's that's the Tokyo Skytree. But yeah, I guess uh, from this article, it reads, Tokyo Skytree will be getting the full JoJo's Bizarre Adventure treatment. The collaboration was announced early last month as part of a citywide celebration in honor of the anime's 10th anniversary uh, just before opening day, which I believe was May 10th. Uh, they revealed a look at what visitors can expect to see, buy, and eat when the Joestar Line conquers the world's tallest tower. Send me the link. Send me the link. Yeah. Um, so if you go to, to this article, we'll share it on our Discord for everyone to take a look at. Um, it looks like they have like artwork uh, and art displays up in the Tokyo Sky Tree, uh, d- various art designs related to JoJo. Uh, and yeah, it, it's it's very vibrant, very gorgeous, of course, in the vein of JoJo's unique animation that style. That looks so cool. What the fuck? I want to go. <laughs> yeah, it says, Look at this merch. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So you can you can take a, a selfie, it says, or, or purchase a photo package to get a picture alongside your favorite character, uh, which I feel like they do that a lot at all those touristy spots throughout the world. Is this Jotaro Omurice where it says Ora Ora? Yeah, on the I was about plate? to say it's it's called Ora Ora Omurice that you can purchase um, to eat. To eat, yes, I would hope so. <laughs> and then or you have, can just admire it. Look at this, um, some sort of dessert with a spiderweb theme, green and butterflies and whatnot with Jolene on it. That's so cool. Yeah, if you notice the, the look little at the ice Dio cream latte. <laughs> yeah, the ice cream on that uh, Jolene themed dessert. It, it's green, and then it has her her buns. On yeah, top of it. and her heart butterfly motif. Yeah, thing. Um, and then of, you you mentioned the Dio Brando latte. Which I think Dude, this if latte you, is so fucking funny. Yeah, it, it looks like when you order it, you can get a random coaster as a bonus, and so uh, they have all the images of the different coasters you can get right under the picture of the latte. I like how the coasters are all the JoJo's with their stands, but then for Jonathan and Joseph, because they don't have stands in part one and two, they just have Dio. Like they're they're like counterparts instead, as if these are almost like their stands. <laughs> oh yeah, Joseph has. Uh, caesar behind him yeah (laughs) and yeah there's a lot of other cool giveaways clear files printed cookies acrylic standees key rings and a shopping bag to put it all in these are so cool i'm jealous 
man, Japan gets the coolest shit. Again, I always say that. I understand why anime comes from <laughs> Japan. Everything's in Japan, but I can't help but be jealous. Yeah, and uh, I think the coolest thing is the very last picture, which is of the sky tree illuminated at night. Oh, that and, is cool. And yeah, the, the illumination patterns are inspired by the six jojo protagonists that we have seen in the anime so far that's really cool that's like a nice added touch yeah, i still which... think the dio latte is the best thing though look at that fucking latte yeah. it's so obnoxious yeah i wish like uh here in chicago if, if the sears tower did something like that for... yeah jojo colors yeah but you know i don't i don't think the, our city is as centered around anime as as tokyo is maybe someday we can dream okay if, if Araki can do uh, a, a collab with the louvre then maybe they can do a collab with the sears tower yeah hopefully although i'm sure like los angeles because that's that's a pretty big hub for like asian and um, anime culture they'd probably get it first before the midwest um but for those of you who have the luxury of living in japan this pop-up collaboration will run from May 10th through August 9th. And I know the, the country is starting to, or Japan is starting to open up now. And so if if there is a chance that they will fully open up, um, hopefully some of us out west can, can get a, can kind of sneak in a trip to, to go see the sky tree. Hell yeah, that would be amazing. All right, so on to Tower of Grey. Um, right off the bat, I want to say something that I think I, I meant to mention at some point earlier, but it became apparent when Polnareff showed up on screen. Um, if you look at the space between the character's eyebrows, it Polnareff? looks... Yeah, all the characters. Okay. When they're Especially when they're furrowing their brow, it looks like a ball sack. Oh, <laughs> I didn't expect you to say that. I mean, it does. It totally does. I, I oh, People great. have talked about oh, it yeah. before. Now you can't unsee it. You're I, welcome. I'm looking at one of an image of Polnareff. Polnareff's is, I think, is the, the the worst, or not the worst, but the most obvious. The most um, prominent. The most prominent ball sack between the eyes uh, because he doesn't have eyebrows. But yeah, if you look at any character design, uh, I think any of the male character designs from oh God, I'm JoJo Part Avdol 3. too. Yeah, you'll never be able to unsee the ball sack in between their oh, eyebrows. Oh, dear. This is just like um, Peter Griffin with the balls on his chin. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I think I meant to mention that earlier. Um, I may have mentioned that about Parts 1 or 2. I'm not sure. Um, I, I don't think it's if they have that it's as obvious as Part 3. I think Part 3 is... Ball sack is most uh, most defined here. Ball sack between the eyebrows. I feel like we've talked about dicks and balls <laughs> a lot recently <laughs> on our episodes. Not just JoJo, but in strictly anime. Too. It's not intentional, people. We swear. <laughs> Penises on the brain. <laughs> but anyway, moving into the actual episode, what did you think about Tower of Grey? Because the gang, the bros, the boys, they have set off officially for Egypt. This is the actual start of jotaro's journey of their journey yeah so as, as much as we've started the the stardust crusade in a way i guess we've also started the the stand of the week run through with these episodes because uh, we had a short break in episode three where they were helping out uh Kakyoin, and then we find out about holly um suffering from her stand but i think 
every subsequent episode from this point onward deals with a different enemy stand user. Yup, it's stand of the week formula yeah. for the rest of the time <laughs> until we get to Dio. <laughs> Although for this week, it, it would be two stands of the week because we see uh, Tower of Grey, which I think the tower, is that the stand name? Tower of Grey. Yeah, okay. I don't think they tell us the, the guy's name. The okay, well, name. I'll bring that up later in the... Um, in the, the what the hell's our segment called? <laughs> I'm losing my oh in the and music and or tarot reference, uh, but yeah. Besides besides getting into that formula that we've come to know and love from JoJo, uh, I think we're we're gonna continue questioning a lot of the logical fallacies and inconsistencies with stands and stand users, and there are there are a bunch in this episode, um, so. <laughs> We'll be continuing our formula of pointing those out since we've started our rewatch. And another thing that is kind of cool about part three is that it, while you still have these like set pieces or like these action set pieces, um, it also mixes in a sort of like travel vlog feel um, that I noticed, especially with this episode when they end up in Hong Kong, where the show starts dropping all these fun facts and trivia about the places that the Stardust Crusaders end up visiting. Um, so as much as this was like a, a good so-so episode, it, it kind of establishes things that we will get used to seeing with every subsequent episode of part three. I think that's where the narrator of Jojo really shines is when he's telling us about the locations, the new locations that the, the Joe bros go to. Um, and I, that's what I love. I mean, it's not often you see a global setting like this in anime. It's certainly not rare, but it's not often. And so it's nice to have a moment, you know, with each new location where you get to learn and appreciate a little bit about that culture, but not only just like telling you about the culture, but actually infusing that into what's happening. Like particularly with this episode, Kakyoin having, you know, been well-traveled, um, he explains about like different, um, you know, different things about Hong Kong that he's learned along the way and, and good food and whatnot. And same with Joseph. So it's pretty cool that they don't just give you information about a certain location. They actually blend some of those local, local flavors, if you will, into the actual episode. But I would say this episode again, like it's, it's good. It, it kind of, uh, you know, it's it's not the most exciting episode because the first half of this episode is literally just four dudes fighting a beetle on an airplane, <laughs> but it's still really funny and I, I really enjoyed it. And I think this, well, every single Jojo part is absurd. It's, it's bizarre. I think this is probably the first episode of part three where things really get bizarre because again, it's four dudes fighting a beetle on an airplane <laughs> that's what the first half of this episode <laughs> yeah, is <laughs> yeah really think about that it's <laughs> these these four macho dudes basically trying to squash a fly yeah <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's jojo and that's why we love it with that all said buckle your seatbelts, dear listeners as we fly into our synopsis and discussion for part three episode four tower of gray the Stardust Crusaders must be flying Spirit Airlines because, man, does this flight suck ass. The group is attacked mid-flight by another of Dio's dastardly disciples in the form of a stag beetle who's way too open to some tongue action. 
Kakyoin comes to the rescue and shuts that shit down right away by knocking an old geezer out cold and tearing the beetle apart Lisa with a sneaky sneakster attack from Hierophant Green. The beetle's ultimate stand user, revealed to be the old geezer from before, takes one last breath to curse their Stardust Crusade before reaching his connecting flight to HE double hockey sticks. Joseph uses his extremely limited piloting skills to crash land the plane off the coast of Hong Kong, where he proposes a less risky travel plan to Egypt by sailing the seven seas. The group's date night out on the town is subsequently interrupted by Jean-Pierre Polnareff, a flat-topped Frenchman foraging for friends, until he reveals his true intentions as yet another of Dio's dastardly disciples. Polnareff challenges Avdal to a duel and promises to emaciate the Egyptian esper with his stand, silver chariot, and his fencing sword, thereby giving Avdal, dare I say it, his own French tip. And now onto our next segment of the show is that a music and or tarot reference, where we document any and all nods, homages, and tributes that this extraordinary anime makes to the ordinary world of music and not-so-ordinary world of tarot cards. And there are a good bunch of references in this episode for both tarot and music elements. First off, we have Tower of Grey, the stag beetle stand. This is in reference to the tower, which is the 16th card in the tarot deck. Uh, I believe Avdal in this episode says that the, t- the tower card is evocative of destruction, calamity, and the end of a journey. Uh, and that's exactly what I re- my research said online. This card follows immediately after the devil and all tarots that contain it and is associated with sudden disruptive revelation and potentially destructive change, which is exactly what um, Tower of Grey is trying to do in, in stopping the Stardust Crusaders mid-flight from reaching their destination. The second tarot reference in this episode is with Polnareff stand, Silver Chariot. This is in reference to the Chariot, which is the seventh card in the tarot deck. The Chariot is a card about overcoming conflicts and moving forward in a positive direction. One needs to be one needs to keep going on and through sheer hard work and commitment he will be victorious. I think this is pretty synonymous with Polnareff's turn from enemy to friend, as we will see over the course of these two episodes. But I also see this as uh, very reminiscent of his own struggle to come to terms with his sister's death and him seeking revenge on her killer, which we'll see, I think, in in part two of part three. Part two of part three. No, I agree. I think... Um, that that definitely is a good tie-in to his struggle to get revenge on the the dude that killed his sister. Yeah, so it's it's not just a it's not just a fencing a fencing stand. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but it isn't. <laughs> yeah, and onto our music references, and so this is one that I don't think they mentioned by name, but the elderly assassin, his name is gray fly and this is in reference to glenn frey which is a found or who is a founding member of the american rock band the eagles he was the former co-lead singer with don henley with whom he wrote most of the band's material uh i guess post 
his stint with the Eagles, he was known for singles such as The One You Love, which is one of the songs that has like a, a sexy sax solo intro. <laughs> so not Do curious. I know that one? Um, yeah, I was going to hum this for you. Or here, I'll play it for you really quick off mic. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if I recognize that song. I'm sure I've heard it before, but it doesn't jump out at me. Yeah, I guess I, I kind of remember this because my parents would play uh, um, the radio station 93.9 um, when I was growing up, and that played a lot of like classic rock music. And so I. A lot of sexy sax. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. Solos. <laughs> at, at, when they were driving at night somewhere. And for those of you who uh, want to know, it, it the sax sounds like. The sax. The saxophone sounds like. Da, 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 da. Uh, and so as soon as I like I looked up that song and heard that, I was like, oh, okay. I remember what song this is. Um, and Glenn Frey is also known for another single called The Heat Is On uh, from the movie. I know movie. that one. Yeah, Beverly Hills Cop. That one, yes. Yeah, that one That one I know. Okay, good. So at least <laughs> we, we, all, we both know at least one of Glenn Frey's songs. Um, I, I won't care to bore anyone with another rendition of of how that sounds. But I will move on to the last music reference that we get in this episode. It's with Jean-Pierre Polnareff himself, which I didn't even know his name had references before. I but didn't yeah, his his first name is in reference to Jean-Paul Belmondo. And he was so this isn't actually a music reference, but I just wanted to point this out. Jean-Paul Belmondo is a French actor who was associated with the new wave of French cinema in the 1960s. And Polnareff's last name is a reference to Mikhail Polnareff, who was a French singer-songwriter who was popular for his original album, Kama Sutra. Uh, he does have outlandish hair, kind of like uh, Polnareff's flat top, but... It's not in the same style. It's more outlandish in that his is more of a blowout, blowout look. If you look up pictures of him, um, I don't know if people are. Does he have eyebrows? Because Polnareff doesn't. I'm pretty sure he does. When I, <laughs> yeah, I was I was more looking at his hair. Oh, you know what? His hair kind of covers his eyebrows, so he can't. And he wears like sunglasses in almost every photo. But no, it looks like he does have eyebrows. Um, yeah, I don't know if people will be familiar with the songs, but I looked up one on Spotify called Love Me, Please Love Me. It's a pretty good doo-wop song. So if you are fond of that genre, I recommend you give it a listen. And now it's time for the JoJo meme rundown, where we list each new JoJo meme that appeared in this episode. This one was pretty light on memes. I have one, but it's not even like a meme that gets memed a lot. I have seen it around before. It's the part where uh, the two flight attendants gush over Jotaro, and then he just says, move, bitch, and <laughs> pushes <laughs> all of the, or both of them to the side. Um, we'll talk more about that uh, later, but that, I'd say, is the only meme that I've seen from this episode. So, as always, if anyone, you know, has any other memes from Tower of Grey that we forgot about, let us know so we can honor those memes as well. All right. So, the beginning of this episode starts with Enya, or Enyaba, I think is the localized name. Um, Enya telling us, 
I don't know, like she tells us that people feel joy of fear of meeting Dio or some shit. Like, I don't know. She's talking way too much in the beginning, honestly. <laughs> I just wanted to pay attention to what uh, what uh, Dio was doing. But she was saying something about why people are so engulfed with Dio and, and how he's able to charm them to follow him, um, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's something having to do with like the joy of fearing him or something like that. Yeah, I really didn't pay attention to Enya's and or Enyava's monologue uh, but it was interesting that she mentioned the true or like Dio being the embodiment of fear as joy and I don't know if it, it, it's just because people are so terrified of Dio that they find him so appealing in a way too. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of a big brain explanation of why he's able to get people to follow him. I think it's Araki just trying to help us understand why, besides, I think, Kakyoin and um, Polnareff, why all these people are following him without having flesh buds implanted in their brains. I know we talked about mm -hmm. this before um, when we first talked about Kakyoin. We're, we're going to try to pay attention to see if there's anyone else besides Polnareff and Kakyoin who do have flesh buds um, throughout the, the rest of part three. I'm pretty sure there's not, though. I think it's just the two I'm of them. Th I was thinking like vanilla ice all the way at the end if we saw flesh bud. I could be wrong. I though. don't remember him having it, but yeah, we'll, we'll just have to keep keep our our eyes peeled for flesh buds. <laughs> and I guess like this thing of Dio being fear as joy kind of reinforces uh, one of Avdol's flashbacks in an earlier episode where he he said he was so enamored by Dio's charisma. By his beauty. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I guess that too, that he, he felt so drawn to him, but at the same time terrified. It's, it's that, I guess, that allure of Dio where you know he's he's a terrible and evil person, but there's just some kind of sex appeal about him. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it is Dio. <laughs> but yeah, I think it, it, it helps us to understand why there's this cult following of enemy stand users helping Dio achieve his ultimate goal. Um, and I think we'll we'll come across enemy stand users that are pure evil and then ones that are a little more ambiguous that maybe have a different reason than just pure evil to be following Dio. So it'll be kind of interesting to talk through each of them and why they're motivated to be a part of Dio's team. But here we have Tower of Grey's stand user where he's just flat out evil. It's his whole shtick. Like he, he likes to cause catastrophes essentially and get people killed. So we move on to the plane where there's a fucking bug flying around and the Joe bros being the uh, the big brain guys that they are, they immediately assume a stag beetle is an enemy stand user. <laughs> I mean, they're right, but like still, <laughs> that's immediately where their brains go. And it's probably because Joseph's been around the block. He knows what the fuck, you know, is a threat and what's not. Jotaro's really fucking smart. He can spot that shit a mile away. Um, Avdol knows stands very, very well. Kakyoin, I don't know. He's he's a pretty bright dude, I guess. So it's just it was so funny to me watching this, thinking like, oh, there's a bug on the plane. Like anyone else would be like, whatever, just it's gross, but kill it. Here they're like, is that an enemy stand user? <laughs> That's immediately where their brains go. Maybe it's because well, I, I was thinking like, they're flying out of Japan, and stag beetles are pretty prominent in that country right yeah there's beetles and shit i don't know if stag beetles specifically but yeah there's a lot of beetles in, in japan 
So I'm, I was at first I was like, why is there a, a random beetle? Like if if it's a random beetle on the plane, then yeah, that's cause for concern. But yeah, if if they're flying out of a country where beetles are are known to be um to be prominent and it shouldn't be so surprising but yeah and i agree and i i don't think stag beetles are an immediate threat to anybody i don't know if they're like poisonous or what but i would assume not um so i would also assume that they wouldn't be startled by a bug on the plane if it was like a snake or, or so like snakes a scorp- on a plane yeah snakes on a plane or like a <laughs> scorpion or something which does happen um in like the the more desert like states i've heard stories about like scorpions getting snuck on because they're like bugs they like sneak into little crevices and then they somehow get onto plane or onto planes and then they have to kill them but anyway then i I could see them reacting the way that they did but you know what they weren't wrong so we'll we'll look past it also this is this is one thing where it i'm just thinking of the logic of this scene so like you're what thirty thousand feet in the air and there's there's cabin pressure Right, and that's kind of affecting your ability to hear things. I'm surprised they can hear the fluttering wings of this stag beetle. Maybe it's really loud. I mean, I feel like the engine roaring is probably more deafening than anything, but mm-hmm. I don't know. But, heard it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they're yeah. very acutely aware of their surroundings. <laughs> yeah, right. They're, they're, they're Joe Bros. They have heightened senses and abilities and then so. on top of that <laughs> I, I'm, I'm the whole episode or the whole first half of the episode i'm thinking how do these guys not wake up everyone on the plane with their yelling yeah, that too. they're literally screaming at a beetle and then you know like obviously no one else is a stand user so they can't see their stand so they're just like standing there looking at the beetle shouting like ora ora and all these things like nobody woke up literally nobody woke up like not even the flight attendants thought to look back and say you know what the fuck's all that noise oh yeah because they just came out of nowhere later in the scene yeah they were like in the front of the plane or something everyone else is affected by the cabin pressure and and their and their hearing but not the joe bros (laughs) or this enemy stand user well speaking of crying out things not crying but like crying things out we get the very first star platinum cry from jotaro we do yeah he says star platinum oh that's right because he he did get the name at the end of the last episode yeah so it's the first time he shouts star platinum and i was like ooh. That's awesome. Like I just obviously we've heard it a thousand times, but just hearing the first one ever, um, I think was was a really cool moment. And then out pops Star Platinum, and um, I don't know. I guess Tower of Grey starts talking to them because Tower of Grey is yet another stand that can communicate but is not sentient. And this is something we'll look at as well. We we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I think at least in the anime, the only sentient stand is Sex Pistols from part five, Mista's stand, because mm-hmm. they actually converse with him and they have their own thought process um, versus other stands where it seems like it's the stand user communicating through the stand, which is a thing. They actually established that in part three, I think in the next episode with the uh, the monkey on the ship when... Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess it's right before that. No, 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 yeah, when they're on the boat and then Jotaro gets pulled into the water and he's able to use his stand to communicate to the stand user that's trying to kill him in the water, they specify, like, you can communicate through your stand to other stands and subsequently to their to their users. So we'll, we'll continue to look at stands as we get introduced to them pretty much throughout all of the JoJo anime because one of our ongoing questions is, 
are there any other sentient stands besides Sex Pistols? So here I would say Tower of Grey is not sentient. I think it's the stand user talking through his stand. Yeah, because uh, that was something that I pointed out to you as we were watching is that this beetle is, is suddenly talking. Um, of, of course, we haven't met the actual stand user yet since he appears later. Um, I do know that I think the, the, the stand mentions that they had caused a plane crash in England the year prior that killed 300 people. And I was wondering if there was like a historical precedent for that. And I think I, I just found it. It was Pan Am Flight 103, um, December 21, 1988. Although that's what we have to clear up. When does this, when does Stardust Crusaders take place? Um, Iraqi changed it. So I think it was whatever year made Jotaro 17. He like changes it to be 89 where he becomes 18. And I think it was in the okay. middle of part three. Like he just he just suddenly started saying, now, now it's 1989. And so okay. everyone's like, is Jotaro 17 or 18? <laughs> I think technically with the most recent change, Jotaro's, Jotaro is 18, but he okay. started off 17. So I guess with that time jump, this, this sort of makes sense because then the year before would be 1988. Um, which is when this Pan Am Flight 103 uh, crashed over Scotland, or it, it exploded in midair, uh, killing all 243 passengers and 16 crew members. Yeesh. So very, obviously very sad situation, but I guess Araki kind of did his research. I'm sure like the the real reason for that plane exploding wasn't a stand user, but I guess it the timeline kind of fits uh, within this world of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. And Tower of Grey, I don't know what the significance is with the tongue action, <laughs> as you referred yeah, to earlier. Yeah, it's called the, uh, the Tower Needle. The Tower Needle. Yeah. Maybe there's some sort of <laughs> Maybe because of like there. how long the t his tongue can go. It's like it, it extends sort of like a tower. I, I guess know. if you needed to pick something that this little ass beetle could do, maybe a, a some sort of needle-like tongue sticking out. I guess that makes sense. But either way, that's the stand's power. And uh, we see Tower of Grey rip through three dudes' heads as they're sleeping. And again, I question how no one wakes up to this. Um, but thank God Kakyoin is there to remind Avdol that his fire would blow the plane up. Because that's the first thing Avdol thinks to do is light this place up. This compressed cabin. Just light it up. Like, no, you're, you're all going to die if you do that. <laughs> so Avdol's useless in this episode, essentially. Well... In the first part of the episode. Which is weird because doesn't like Hierophant Green or Kakuin summons Hierophant Green. And so he uses Emerald Splash. Those are projectiles. Yup. And they're going at a high rate of speed. Yup. Yeah. That's going to create like holes in the cabin, which will cause like. An explosion. <laughs> well, yeah, it'll cause probably like an explosion, if not the like rapid decompression and everyone will be sucked out of the airplane. Yeah. But yeah, so, so you're right. That That is something that, that JoJo fans always question with this episode. It's like, yeah, Kakyoin, you stopped Avdol from using fire, which definitely would have blown up a compressed cabin. However, you're also using something that would destroy this compressed cabin by shooting out Emerald Splash. Yeah. I don't know, <laughs> JoJo logic. And not only that, so Kakuin, obviously, he steps up and faces his, I guess, former ally head on. Um, and then the old man comes out of nowhere 
and they just think it's a random passenger and then you have like that kind of cartoony moment where his dentures pop out of the mouth <laughs> like realizing like what's going on and then kakuin knocks him out unconscious right wouldn't the beetle no longer be sentient or conscious correct yeah i had the same thought i'm like first of all it's pretty clever of the old man to pretend to be a regular passenger um however my my thought is maybe he kakyoin didn't actually knock him unconscious maybe he just pretended to fall when he got hit because mm. yeah there's no way tower of gray would still be around if a stand is connected to one's own mental strength or mental capacity i don't know what they call it their spirit right like yeah, mental like fortitude yeah your fighting spirit if your if your brain turns off <laughs> then i think your stand wouldn't be able to appear so my mm -hmm. my thought is he fakes being knocked out by kakyoin because then he pops up later anyway um kind of like he he kind of reveals himself because he gets like damaged mm -hmm. by the beetle getting damaged and then he like wakes up um or reveals himself to be awake but yeah i, th I thought the same thing i'm like that, that doesn't make any sense man it's always so much fun pointing out these inconsistencies <laughs> again we're not like criticizing the episode for it but it's just it's just funny uh, one thing that's not so funny, but more so majestic that I loved with the scene is we hear Kakyoin's theme music. We do. It's the first time we get introduced to it. And honestly, it's a fucking awesome theme song. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why Kakyoin gets such a cool theme song. Like not to knock the guy or anything, but there's some cooler characters out there. But yeah, I, I think Kakyoin's theme song is one of the best Joe Bro theme songs of them all. I would say Bucheretis is also yes. fantastic. Those two are two of my favorite jo Joe Bro theme songs. Um, so yeah, it's, it's great that they that this is the, the introduction of that. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know, uh, his Kakyoin's theme song is called Noble Pope. And I think this is a reference back to, if you listen to, I think it was episode two, where he talked about Hierophant Green. Hierophant being a person of religious authority so therein lies the reference to pope uh and yeah i i just love this this theme uh i think it's my second favorite theme out of part three behind uh jotaro's theme of course stardust crusaders but yeah this one it, it just carries so much hype behind it like every time i hear it i feel like it's something you could hear in like a super smash brothers game like one of the stage themes. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, because you have the, you have a, uh, the the strings that are just constantly making this this intense rhythm. I I don't know what the sound is in the background. I can't think of like the instrument. Um, <laughs> I, I'm I'm drawing a blank. I think it kind of sounds like a, almost like a a, a bassoon. I could be wrong. Maybe another musician out there can can pinpoint what I'm talking about, but it has like this sort of staccato rhythm to it where it's like dun 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 that also just amps up the intensity of whatever scene is using the song. And I know we questioned in Kakyoin's introductory episode, which is episode two of part three, um, whether we see Hierophant Green really use its range in subsequent episodes. Here's an example of when he or it does that. It uses its appendages to discreetly maneuver around the plane and then attack Tower of Grey to kind of pin it down. So we do see that. Obviously, another 
another well-known example is towards the end when he goes up against Dio. Um, he, he uses Hierophant Green in that way. But uh, we'll see what other times he uses that range and the hidden appendages that he has. That was pretty clever, though, to, to throw the beetle off. Yeah, I mean, it was so fucking seats. fast that not even Star Platinum could, could get a hold of it. So then we get uh, the moment that I mentioned earlier with the meme segment. The Joe Bros approach the front of the cat or the front of the airplane to see what's going on with the pilots. The flight attendants try to stop them. Um, they see Jotaro. They immediately start gushing over him. And this is a running theme through the first part of part three. Um, we got that with the schoolgirls um, in the first episode, second, no, second episode, mm-hmm. when they're following him. Then he tells them all to shut the fuck up. Um, we see this here. We'll see it again probably in the next episode when those girls want him to take their picture. So there's a couple of times where we see women gush over Jotaro, and every single time he is not having it. Same thing here. <laughs> they start gushing over the, over him, and he immediately is like, move, bitch. Like, verbatim, <laughs> move, bitch. It like, takes his Get arm and shoves the him out of the way. <laughs> and I think it's so fucking funny. I'd, I'd never watch the scene and not laugh. To me, it's just so quintessential Jotaro. And I, I find it hilarious. And then Kakyoin comes in, and he's like, I apologize for my friend. He shouldn't talk to you that way. Yeah, complete opposites there. I think it, what's great is the delivery of the line because Jotaro is so nonchalant Yeah, about he it. Like, literally does like, not give a fuck <laughs> at all. I don't know why these these women in this part love the bad boys. <laughs> it's like you, you'd think that, I don't know, when, when, when women start gushing over a a handsome character usually the character plays into it or it kind of you know gives them an ego boost Jotaro flat out does not fucking give a shit and I kind of respect him for that like he's not interested in that stuff and he doesn't want to be gushed over so he's probably just like whatever I will say though and this is another kind of running theme we'll see with Jotaro when it comes to certain characters in part three I feel like Jotaro is one of those characters that responds well to strength and this is the first I think this is like one of the first examples we see of this in part three and again we'll see it over and over again um here you know after tower of gray's stand user dies the flight attendants don't scream like they they want to but they hold it back and then jotaro kind of does a 180 going from move bitch to then calling them pros for not screaming and then asking them for their help kind of like showing them more respect mm. He, he kind of has that, that, that 180 because he realizes, oh, they're not just weaklings. They're actually, you know, very good at their jobs. And they didn't kind of cause an issue with our situation by screaming and waking up the passengers. I think another example that we'll get um, in a couple of episodes is Annie when she's introduced. Um, Joel Toto responds well to her right off the bat because she's pretty tough. She's like, I'm going to fucking cut you. She pretends to be a boy so that she can, you know, run away and all this stuff. And he, he, I think, you know, responds well to her and her strength. But then as their relationship goes on and she starts gushing over Jotaro when she's reintroduced later in part three, he does a 180 in the opposite direction where he's like, you're fucking annoying. <laughs> Please go away. Yeah, you're right. So I think we all, well, not to dive too much into it, but we'll also see this over the course of part three with Joseph. I think Jotaro slowly starts to respect Joseph more and more, realizing he's not just a useless old man, that he actually is very brilliant uh, a seasoned fighter and offers a lot to their group so anyway i just find this one of those like small but very interesting things about jotaro that i'm hoping we can bring up you know as the episodes go on yeah and um speaking of of joseph 
like after Jotaro, like he instructs, I think, the stewardesses to prep the passengers, uh, and then the 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 old man makes an appearance again, just to again kind of curse curse the Jobros on their journey before he he gets sent to the shadow realm. Uh, Joseph steps in and and offers his his help by trying to fly the plane since the pilots. This is where it's weird. Like when would Tower of Grey have killed the pilots before they they started to realize that the plane was going down? Probably earlier on. I mean, they were already dead when they entered the the cockpit, so they like he probably sent his stand in there and just offed them right away. But like before the Jolbros encountered Tower of Grey or while they were probably fighting. before. I would say before because the plane's probably on autopilot. Hmm. But then if it's on autopilot, it wouldn't have started nosediving, would it? Did it start nosediving? I thought he just needed to land it. Or it was the plane was crooked. It started to fly crooked. Oh, well, then, yeah, maybe maybe one of their bodies was leaning on it. I don't know. <laughs> My <laughs> assumption is that Tower of Grey killed them before and then came out into the cabin, and that's when they first saw it. Mm, okay. Yeah, timeline's kind of kind of screwy here. But anyways, yeah, it, it's Joseph's time to shine. And he mentions that it's only his third time flying. Um, and I kind of had to backtrack. The first time was when he was a young teenager saving a speed wagon from those hijackers. Yes. And the second time was um, when he pummeled cars into the volcano in their climactic battle. Yes. Which I'm surprised, like, what, Joseph was probably at 19 or so at that time. And now he's like, I want to say in his mid fifties that he hasn't flown a plane ever since. Well, but. I don't think he intentionally wants to fly planes. <laughs> I think he just in those situations had like life or death moments of like, I got to fly this plane. Otherwise I'm going to die. Yeah. I'm just, I'm surprised that he knew how to. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But I do love that he has that callback. It's one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, this is a story that's connected. Like hearing him mm -hmm. say, this is the third time I'm flying a plane and uh, the two other times I crashed it. I think he says that, right? And then Joel throws like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, uh, okay. Um, I, I just love that because at first you think about it and you're like, wait, when did he do that? And you're like, oh shit, that's right. Part two was a thing. We we saw his early story before getting into part three. And I just, those callbacks I think are really cool. It's kind of like when Joseph on occasion uses Hamon in part three. You're just like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, Hamon. That's a thing. Like he knows how to do that. So I, I get really hyped by those, those callbacks. Yeah, so you got the consistency there. It's just when you're dealing with like logic and and science in the show that's where inconsistency falls flat but yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just nice that they have that connection uh between part two and part three here um before we get into the second half of the episode we do get a uh, the stand stats for tower of gray and i just wanted to run through those quickly um destructive power is e speed is a range is a durability is c precision and accuracy is e Development potential is E. So this stand is just shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised that Dio would would send like a, would send a fly basically to try and take these these crusaders down. Well, the guy is seasoned in causing catastrophes, so that's yeah, something. I guess. Well, and before he dies, he warns them that they'll be pursued every hour of every day by enemy stand users. And damn, was he right. Because when they land in Hong Kong, we immediately get introduced to yet another stand user. As you said earlier, this is a double. 
um, double enemy stand user type of episode. But when they um, when they first get to Hong Kong, uh, that's when the narrator tells us all those fun facts about about Hong Kong. And again, like I really appreciated just having that moment where narrator's explaining things, Kak Yoin is explaining things. Joseph's like, I know some great food that you should try. Um, but I did really also love that Joseph was weirded out by the hot cola. Because, you know, he grew up in America. He, I, the, His introduction to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure is him using soda to blow a, a cop's finger off. Oh, that's right. So it's just so funny to see him be like, oh, hot cola, what the fuck? <laughs> and he's very outspoken. It's kind of like how he complains about Japanese rooms being too small and all that stuff. Like He just blurts out whatever on, is on his mind. You know what? I just Googled hot cola Hong Kong, and the first result is a Reddit post from the subreddit r slash Hong Kong. And the person who posted this uh, says, I was watching an anime recently, and a scene set in Hong Kong ended up involving a Hong Kong specialty of hot cola. Oh, gee, I I wonder what they're talking about. Yeah, he wanted, I think this uh, person wanted to know if it's an. It's an actual delicacy in Hong Kong, and it seems that it is, according to some of these replies, that one person says that their grandmother uses hot cola to help soothe a sore throat and cold. <laughs> Interesting. Well, yeah. hey, don't knock it till you, till you try it. Um, I would I would be down to try that. I don't know how you would heat up cola and how that would work with the, the fizziness of it all, but yeah. I'd try it. Before they go to the restaurant, though, that Joseph says he knows the the owner of or whatever, Avdol says they can't allow any more innocent people to be killed. And then I think back to what happened in the first half of this episode, and I'm like, how do they walk away from a plane full of dead people without being detained and questioned? Like, you'd figure everyone on that plane would be detained so that they could figure out what the fuck happened to all these people and why they were murdered. But the the Joe Bros just leave, right? Because they're, they're they're on a time crunch. Mm-hmm. Like they they only have a set number of days to get to Dio, and they're they just walk away scotch free. When I mean, they kind of are involved in the murder of these people. Maybe Joseph paid them off with his yeah, wife. or the Speedwagon Foundation <laughs> he, came he, through. Yeah, he had connections, so <laughs> that's how I'll that's how I'll explain that. <laughs> But yes, we get to the final scene in the restaurant, and we also get the final member of the Joe Bros, Polnareff. Although well, he's not yeah, yet not a yet member, the, or he's not the final member because you have Iggy. Oh shit, you're right. The right, final fine. human member. The final human member of the Joe Bros, Polnareff. Again, although he won't become a member until the next episode, and I, I love Polnareff. He's one of my favorite part three characters next to Joseph. He falls within that category of the lovable, stupid characters that I really like because he is a lovable, stupid character. So I, I, at first I hated him because I thought he was so fucking ugly. <laughs> like the dude doesn't have eyebrows and his hair is like a million miles tall. But as I watched the show, I'm like, this this character is absolutely hilarious. I think Polnareff brings the comedic element to the group. Joseph does definitely have the comedic, um, you know, pieces that we need in part three. But there's something about Polnareff's comedy that I think hits different than Joseph's because I think Polnareff just gets into these stupid situations. Not that Joseph doesn't. We'll see that in the future with Abdul and stuff. But I don't know. There's something about Polnareff where he's like the butt of the joke more often. And I kind of appreciate that. I kind of like that. 
Yeah, <laughs> I think when I first saw Polnareff, I just kept thinking of Paul Phoenix from Tekken, except with uh, with white hair instead of blonde, because <laughs> they both have the crazy long flat or crazy tall flat top. But yeah, like I, later on, I, I also learned to appreciate Polnareff, especially with um, the, the the gum thing that I. I think happens in oh, okay. the next couple episodes, but <laughs> the gum, yeah. he's so stupid. <laughs> but yeah, obviously here he's he's playing the the macho macho villain as he he um, cleverly reveals that he was sent to to kill the Joe Bros by using the carrot slice shaped like a star to to, <laughs> to point out that he he's found a Joe Star. Yeah, he he's aware of the Joe Star birthmark. Um, I but or, sorry, like one thing I want to ask is, how did Dio know to send Polnareff to Hong Kong? Uh, his hermit purple shit with the the chopping the the, the camera probably. I mean, mm. it was like same day they ran into Polnareff. Yeah, so but he called. Really he with, booked a charter flight to, with, to with Hong Kong of, for Polnareff. With any of these stand users, how does he know? I mean, it's so timely. It, it's so timely with all these stand users. There's probably he's probably just stalking them. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. I feel like Polnareff um, might be the first real example of an enemy stand user who sticks out like a sore thumb because of their appearance. There's that meme, which we haven't gotten to yet, but will be coming where it's like, the stand user could be anyone. And then, you know, then you get the image of the stand user and they're wearing like an obscenely ridiculous outfit. <laughs> Polnareff's isn't the most ridiculous outfit that we're going to see in part three, but it's Pretty. I mean, he looks well, pretty hair, ridiculous. Yeah, like his hair sticks out the most. Yeah, he he looks obvious, right? And so I would say, I mean, Kakuyoin maybe, but he's just a, a Japanese student. Student, yeah. So I feel like Polnareff, I think, is the real example, the first real example of, you know, the stand user could be anyone, and then the stand user. <laughs> and as Polnareff approaches their table, asking if he can join them, Jotaro tells Polnareff to basically fuck off. <laughs> like immediately, he's like, "No, go away." But then, you know, Joseph invites him to to eat with them, and I loved how everyone was unsure about the food that Joseph ordered. And then Jotaro chimes in, like, "I knew this would happen." Like verbatim, he's like, "I knew this would happen" because he knows his grandpa better than anybody. Um, uh, I, I just it, the dynamic between Jotaro and Joseph just cracks me up because you couldn't find two more opposite characters that are related to each other and you know they can't get away from each other i will commend joseph for being adventurous with his cuisine though yeah and he was right everyone enjoyed it mm -hmm. including polnareff and his star carrot but then we get that fucking entrance for silver chariot where he comes flying out of the <laughs> rice porridge like what the fuck <laughs> very dramatic entrance <laughs> like of all the places it just rips through the rice porridge and I, I really love hearing Polnareff's voice actor say Silver Chariot. It's one of my favorite things. Anytime he shouts Silver Chariot, I'm like, that sounds so good. It just sounds nice. It's kind of like when Jotaro shouts Star Platinum. It's just like, yeah, that, that's hype. So I, I'm excited to hear lots of Silver Chariots for the rest of part three. Although I, I think Silver Chariot, um, it's one of the stand designs that I'm not too fond of just because it, it seems like a very very skinny knight <laughs> and it has like cartoon eyes it's yeah, one of the only that stands too. that has like these weird cartoon eyes i'm gonna look up a picture look up a picture of silver chariot which like those are used to great effect in the episode where polnareff and silver chariot start de-aging um and oh become yeah babies. oh baby silver chariot yeah but outside of that like 
like it's clear that Polnareff is the comic relief characters because again with his this design and with Silver Chariot's eyes, you can't really take it seriously. Uh, obviously, at this moment, uh, when he's an enemy, uh, you, you don't know what you're expecting, but then you start to get a really soft soft spot for Silver Chariot. But yeah, just design wise, it just looks like a you know like in movies you have the the haunted like knight's armor that walks around yeah that's what silver chariot reminds me of it's like a video game enemy yeah like not even a boss just like an a a regular enemy (laughs) um but i we always love to bring out bring up sound design i love silver chariot's fencing sound design yeah it's like i can't describe it i'm I'm not gonna be uh very good at mimicking it but it's a, a satisfying sound it's just like really satisfying and then, you know, it's, it's that combination of hearing Polnareff shout Silver Chariot and then hearing the fencing noise. It just, it hits right every single time. And appropriately, the first person to go up against Polnareff is Avdol because, you know, it's considering how the rest of their relationship plays out in part three, I think these two have a very special relationship. Mm. So I do kind of love that Avdol is the one that goes up against Polnareff. I also think it's logically... Like logically, it makes sense because Kakyoin's had his time to shine with Tower of Grace, and so now it's mm-hmm. Abdul's time time to shine with uh, with Polnareff and Silver Chariot. But again, like this kind of sets the foundation for the rest of their very very interesting you know friendship that they have um, for the rest of this part. Yeah, I, I forgot that yeah, Pol- Polnareff and Abdul have a very close relationship, especially with what happens in the like the climactic battle against dio or even or right with, before that with what, what happens with a uh, whole horse when polnareff thinks abdul dies oh yeah that yeah that too so they this is before they became each other's true joe bros <laughs> <laughs> i also just love that like the, the they put the table on is it uh, polnareff who sets the table on fire but it just looks like a clock yeah, what the fuck was that all about? <laughs> I think very, he referenced it, but I can't remember what he said. He said uh, he would promise to kill Avdal before the clock, that fiery clock on the table, on the table, <laughs> on the table struck twelve. But <laughs> I, I just, where the hell did this clock come from? It's it's the showmanship of being a JoJo character. <laughs> yeah. And so that brings us to our final thoughts for part three, episode four, Tower of Grey. Did this episode leave you feeling a towery gray? What the fuck? <laughs> well, it left me feeling, I'm going to pull this from you, like it was a transitional episode. Wow. Because it literally did transition us from Japan to the airplane to Hong Kong to Polnareff's introduction. Because you only got Tower of Grey for half an episode. Granted, you probably can't do more with that whole scene than like half an episode's worth. So I'm mm-hmm. fine with that. Actually, I read somewhere that they added the scene um, where they're outside that one vendor's stand and he's talking about the rice porridge. So it's not in the manga? No. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So they probably just needed things to fill in for this quote-unquote transitional episode. I mean, the episode ended at a, on a good note. It was the the cliffhanger to Polnareff and Avdol's big duel. Um, but yeah, I would say this was a good episode. I enjoyed it. Um, it's definitely not going to be one of the top episodes of part three. And there's a lot of fucking episodes in part three. Um, but I I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Like I don't dislike watching this episode. I, I very much 
I have fun with this one similar to, to other ones. So I would say it's like, it's good. Like it's not mid, it's not bad. It's not okay. It's, it's good. It's a solid episode. What about you? Yeah, I felt the same way uh, this episode and, you know, the, the fight with Grey Fly or Tower of Grey was good, but it wasn't anything spectacular. Uh, I do like that with Kakuin, it's it gives him a little bit of redemption against his, again, his, his former ally. And we also get introduced to his banger of a theme. Um, it was nice to get a peppering of fun facts about Hong Kong and um, like the food culture there. Uh, I think one thing we didn't mention is how Kakuin just mentions about the the teapot um, tipping the lid to signify that you need more tea. Or Which anything. is a thing. So it is a thing. Yeah, it is a thing. Um, one of our friends taught us that when we went to Chinatown like years ago. Um, I remember we were, it was like midnight. We went to Chinatown with her and we all drank the tea. She's like, oh, just leave the lid open. They'll know to bring more. Oh, and did that same friend also tap the table like Kakuin to show? No, she didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but she said, leave the lid open. Well, we could all learn from Kakuin when it comes to like the culture of Hong Kong. I hope that's legit. Because what if you go to Hong Kong, you start tapping the table and they look at you like, the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like as if you're playing poker or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was like this was... Uh, Wait, is 19... it poker or blackjack where you tap the table? Uh, it's blackjack? I think Hit? it's blackjack, yeah. Yeah, for hitting? Yeah, something like that. I've never played at a table. Or getting so. another card. It's called hitting. I yeah, don't know. Yeah, hit me I don't, is I don't... where you get another card. Yeah, I don't yeah. gamble, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this was, what, 1980s Hong Kong? So who knows if that's still still a, like a tradition there. But yeah, just getting all those travel tidbits. Um, and I feel like we're, we're going to get more down the Stardust Crusading Road. So you could kind of say that uh, with this episode, it establishes that JoJo is a perfect tourism booster for all the countries and regions that take place in the, or that are used as settings in this part. And the later half, again, when they arrive in Hong Kong, uh, it does get transitional where we get the soft introduction of Polnareff in his big baddie form. But I will say it does save for a very interesting cliffhanger as we wait for the fight between him and Avdol. And I, I was kind of laughing off, off mic at this earlier, is the next episode will herald the arrival of one of my favorite lines or memes in part three. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely talk about that. I just realized, didn't in this episode Joseph reference that story around the world in 80 days, which is kind of like, I don't know if it's the inspiration or what um, for the story, but it's yeah. like there's a tie in there with Iraqi wanting to do this story, this journey, this like global journey for the Joe Bros and then mm -hmm. the story around the world in 80 days. Yeah, he does mention that. I, I was It was more so to highlight the the simplicity of the travel in th that book. I didn't, I never read the book. I actually watched, do you remember um, Jackie Chan was in a, in a movie called Around the World in 80 Days? No, I didn't know that. Uh, it came out, yeah, 2004, uh, starring Jackie Chan, Steve Coogan, and Cecil to france oh you know what i think i do remember that i like vaguely vaguely remember that yeah i i just i think i got this uh as a christmas present like the dvd as a christmas present <laughs> and i was just watching it and yeah jackie chan's in this movie for whatever reason 
but yeah, I'm not too familiar with the the original novel, but yeah, I, I feel like the the story of Stardust Crusaders does take inspiration from around the world in 80 days. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm reading Rocky wanted to make this part more like a road movie, basically. And that he did. And we have jumped from Japan to somewhere over the skies to Hong Kong. And I think then they set sail, and I don't remember where they end up after that. But we'll get there. We'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Um, Hope you enjoyed this episode where, you know, we talked about ball sacks in between the eyebrows. Again, you won't be able to unsee it because someone spoiled it for me on Reddit, and I wasn't able to unsee it. And now we have to share in your Now, Yes, now everyone must suffer. (laughs) But yes, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We really appreciate you. And that wraps up episode 48 of Strictly JoJo. If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash the Strictly series and subscribe on your favorite podcast service so you can be notified when new episodes premiere every other Monday. Join our Discord to continue the conversation. Follow us on Instagram at the Strictly series and on Twitter at Strictly series. And check out our website, thestrictlyseries.com, where you'll find more info on Strictly Anime, our other podcasts for anime reviews and discussions. All links are in the description. Thank you so much for listening and sharing our love of JoJo. Stay weeb, everyone. To be continued.